0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Today I'm with Anne Howell. In 1991, Anne woke up in a hospital, not knowing where she was, why she was there or even what a hospital was. What made things even weirder was that Anne believed herself to be a nine-year-old girl. So the fact that she was inhabiting the body of an adult incredibly disconcerting. A woman eventually came to her and told her that she was her mother and she said that Anne's husband and baby would be arriving shortly. But Anne had no memory of these people and no understanding of who she could trust. Anne had a serious case of what's known as retrograde amnesia, which meant she not only had to rediscover who she was before she went into hospital, but also how to read and write again. Anne's memoir is called All That I Forgot. Hi, Anne. Hi, Richard. What do you remember of waking up from that coma in hospital?
0: I remember quite a bit because I've thought of it a lot ever since. It's a moment of waking that I run over in my mind over and over. I remember waking up. Firstly, my eyes wouldn't open, so I had to mount this... Enormous effort to make them go, to part. And when I finally did that and the light settled, nothing made any sense to me. All the objects just looked strange, as if I'd never seen anything like them. So it's very sort of sci-fi. I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought somebody was playing tricks on me and I was in extraordinary pain at the same time, which made it very hard to focus. I, I just had no idea where I was or what had happened. And everything, every time I tried to get a hold of a thought to explain where I was, the thought would sort of run off from me.
1: Were you still in a kind of fugue state, like from a general anaesthetic or from the painkillers that made things weirder than they were?
0: I think I would have been on a fair amount of pethidine and they that produces sort of dreams and nightmares because so I had this pain. I'd had meningitis, which is, I believe, one of the most um, painful conditions you can have. I had lost my memory in relation to my autobiographical self, you know, all the things that had happened to me. I'd also lost knowledge of the world outside, knowledge of a lot of things. I could still still move my eyes around. Like I knew how to... I could make my body do things, but everything hurt so much I could barely move as well.
1: You wrote that you weren't even entirely sure what a hospital was did you know what a window was or a bed was or a closet was or anything like no, that? No,
0: I didn't know any anything at first. But things started coming back to me quite soon. So concepts and names of things. The hospital for a long time, I thought was a place of punishment. I thought I'd done something very bad. And because people were coming and doing tests on me and sticking needles into me. So I, I just tried to scrabble around and work out what was going on. I thought I was, because I couldn't move and everyone else could move, the, the nurses and the doctors could move around, I started to think that the problem was that I couldn't remember. So I, I wanted to hide the fact to people around me that I couldn't remember because I wanted to get out. I wanted to be able to walk and get up and move around.
1: Did you know your name was Anne.
0: No, not until it was, it was mentioned. I didn't, um, sometimes things came back in my mind, but more often than not, I'd get triggered by somebody saying something to me. So if I heard, hello, Anne, I'd think, Anne, Anne, Anne. Oh, oh no, not a great name, but I guess that's mine. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, that seems right. So I was very much reliant on the outside world to inform me and trigger me into remembering things.
1: So once the anaesthetic wore off, who who was Anne then in your mind?
0: Anne was someone who really wanted to be in her snug little home somewhere else and sort of had a vague recollection that she'd been somewhere else and it was not that scary um, previously in some sensible life that she couldn't quite access. I just thought I was a girl. I thought I was a, a clever, smart girl who needed to impress her mummy, um, who wanted her mummy to take her home. But when I first saw my mother, she seemed extraordinarily old because she was a mother of a 30-year-old woman, not a 9-year-old woman. And so I was just so shocked to see her and I thought she was playing tricks on me and then I thought she, she was someone else and then I thought she'd had some awful withering disease and become... Elderly overnight. It was all very um, peculiar.
1: Were you feeling terror or, or with the painkiller sort of, you know, just taking the edge off that terror?
0: I recall really big fear despite the pethidine because the pethidine had also, there was a stage of me waking where the pethidine had given me dreams to go along with the pain. So I was at one point being poked by little demons in bright red shiny coats and being barbecued and that made sense of the pain I could feel. I had a lot of head pain. And um, so the pethidine was also addling my mind. It wasn't necessarily calming me. So there was this mix between hallucinatory experience and waking experience, which at times was quite, felt quite hallucinatory as well.
1: Given that you thought you were nine years old, was it weird to look at your hands and your body and seeing you feeling yourself inhabiting the body of a grown woman?
0: Well, I didn't, I didn't do that for a while. Everything hurt to move. So I didn't actually, it took me a while to look at my hands. It wasn't that instant looking. For ages, I just sat very passively. My head, I didn't realise, was hugely bandaged up. It was very, very heavy, like a bowling ball was on top of it. So I could barely move. I was scared to move. Everything just hurt so much to move. So I was very still and I just had the feedback of people around me to sort of let me know who I was. It it was a very slow dawning that I was this thing called a patient in a hospital, took took quite some time to get there.
1: Were well, you weirded out about the fact that your feet were much further down the bed than they ought to have been if you were nine? Or well, then again, I suppose you're quite you're, physically you're quite petite, aren't you? I don't <laughs> suppose it would have been that odd then in that sense, would it?
0: I am, I am five one. Yeah, I'm a pretty small person, so I have this. Um, I didn't think that much about the size. There were just too many other things going on, yeah, and yeah. you know, I just responded to the world as a young person. I didn't really think it through. I couldn't think very clearly about anything. It was very hard to hold a train of thought at all.
1: So this woman who was your mum but looking much older than she ought to look, what did she tell you once you sort of, she came to you and you floated into consciousness? What What did she say to you?
0: A lot of what she said I didn't understand. People just talk so quickly and I was still coming to grips with words and people they might have theoretically known I had amnesia but they didn't necessarily act accordingly so people were themselves with me so my mother just talked at a rapid pace and
1: but skipping over all these concepts that you didn't know what they were I, didn't, I, suppose,
0: I couldn't really right. but I did a lot of nodding and nodding and smiling because I wanted to seem like I understood I wanted to be a good girl I wanted to please people it was a very strong drive in me to sort of be seen to be participating I knew I should be able to understand and slowly things did come back and I slowly got better at understanding words and fast talking. It was all in there, it was just trapped, you know, so I had to sort of negotiate conversation but she did indicate that this person was coming, um, husband and I had a sense what a husband was. So it was very random what I didn't understand and what I didn't and I had a sense and that really was jarring because I thought, oh goodness, that's a bit adult, I can't have one of those. How is that possible? You know, what's happened to me? Oh, I haven't grown up, have I? Um, And that's when it really struck me when when she
1: said that. And a baby as well?
0: She didn't actually mention that right at the start. Um, That was something I would find out I had by looking at the baby. And that was a moment that I will never forget. Well, let's hope I will not forget it because... I know I, my hat is off to people struggling with dementia, you know, but you can lose memories. But, um.
1: See, I just thought then, as you said that, that it's a, it's a line that most of us use really, really carelessly, but you, you're known to be more cautious than to, you know, to say that.
0: I think, too, as someone who's had almost you know very little memory we're still humans you're a very human person you want to be treated as an equal with people no matter what state your memory's in even though it feels like such a um such a liability in a way to not be able to remember you can't um function like everyone else but um it it was quite hurtful when I couldn't you know when when I felt so stupid and I felt so inadequate so I feel for people that have trouble with their thinking.
1: What happened when your baby arrived what did you think?
0: So my my partner walked in and he was unusual and striking enough, a very unusual looking man for me and, you know, quite quite dashing, I now realise, but at the time he just seemed a bit frightening and other and elegant and um, and on his hip he had this creature, kind of a bit wriggly, um, plump, quite beautiful but, very strange to me. And I, for a minute, thought he'd brought his pet
1: in. Oh, you didn't know what a baby was? I didn't know what a baby was.
0: I did not know what a baby was. And I thought he'd brought his pet in, so I was really struggling to look at this little creature. And he sat quite far. He sat down near my feet. He, he, He was a bit frightened of me, I think. And he sat down near my feet and he bounced her on his knee and she bounced up and down, up and down. And she thought was very proud of herself. And she was smiling at me. And I thought, oh my God, she's whatever this thing is, it's sort of like, is it a little human? Is it a little monkey? Whatever this thing is, I really love it. It's absolutely adorable. And somehow my mother, my mother was there at the time. She let it be known that this was my daughter. And somehow she let me know that, and I, or and I felt this responsibility, this big responsibility. This was mine. This this creature was for me to look after. And I just was staggered. I thought, I wonder what I do with it. I wonder what looking after this creature will involve.
1: Who else came to see you at this time?
0: This beautiful friend of mine, Mahalia, came and Our parents had been best friends. Both our mothers had been best friends and our fathers had been colleagues and good friends. And I'd grown up with her as a child. She's half Indian. And she walked in the room and, again, I was, I I literally said to her, you've grown up. Like, how is this possible? (laughs) And she was great because we were childhood friends. She talked to me like we were kids. She could go, oh, Annie, Yes, I have. I have grown up and isn't it a bummer or whatever she said. And so I trusted her more than other people because, in a way, I let my guard down with her so I could ask her questions. And and she was the person that would tell me I was a journalist.
1: So you, that childhood affection you'd had for her was there still? That was there and maybe some some reservoir of adult affection as well?
0: I think she, she and I have been so connected over the years and she, um, but I really didn't have any memory of my adult life at this point. So mostly it was relating to people from the past and we'd been very close. At our, she's like my sister and she seemed to know how to deal with me and how to talk to me as well. I think it really, she's very empathetic and I think in a way she got how much I didn't know, whereas other people It suited them, or they just couldn't see through my facade, and so she was able to sort of connect with me in a way that that I didn't feel I had to play that that game with her. Of yeah, I know what's going on.
1: Was there another man who came to see you at this time?
0: Oh, absolutely. So a man that I'd known for many years. We went to the same high school, and he'd um, been big in my life. He'd been involved with a friend of mine and various other people, um, came to, to visit me and was quite brilliantly present. He came right through my coma and he also um, was quite romantic.
1: Romantic?
0: Romantic. And I mistook him because he came really regularly. My actual partner wasn't coming as often to visit me and I mistook him initially for my partner I remembered him and I remembered some romance with him that I had, it would turn out that I had had with him, but I was living in the past, you have to understand. Anyway, he was quite, I think, look, it was such an overwhelming situation. I'd almost died. When in that coma, they really didn't think I was going to make it. So people were really, people that loved me and were big in my lives from whatever age were turning up all over the place and there was drama.
1: So you mentioned you had meningitis. What had happened to you? What, what had you gone into hospital for? That you that you later discovered, and what had happened in the course of your care?
0: I had been having these migraines for some years, and when I got pregnant, they just exacerbated. I started to intuit that something was quite wrong. Doctors didn't think so. I didn't go to a I didn't go to a neurosurgeon or anything or a neurologist. I just had. Um, Various doctors, they just thought that headaches were pretty standard for a pregnancy. But these were really serious. They were really bad. And um, I was getting sicker and sicker. And about two days before my birth, I had a stroke. And the way I knew was because my face fell, just half of my face fell. I was quite panicked. What's wrong with me? And I ended up having to give birth before I could find out because really I was you. And I was big. Um, I was as long, felt as, I was, as as big as
1: I was tall. So, so when you went in to give birth, had you told people you'd had this thing?
0: No, I hadn't told anyone. So it went well considered. Oh my God. I know. It was all a bit sort of, I, I should have, I guess. But anyway, I, I went and had a birth and I was really determined to have a natural birth. I had a fantastic birth apparently, um, but my head hurt as much as my contractions. That's how bad those head headaches were. And apparently it was very dangerous. Anyway, I had my child and and my headaches were still really bad. So I started, I got a specialist and started having CT scans and they found that um, I had what's called an AVM, an arteriovenous malformation. What is that? Well, it's like um, an aneurysm. It's in that family, but it's less known. And it's a, a series of Arteries in the in the brain or the outer brain in my case, so it was on the left hand side in the outer brain that had just malformed from birth.
1: So you had this condition from birth. It was a birth defect, and yes. you've been living with this these headaches all your life, and just said, "Oh, they're migraines and mysterious."
0: No, they only the migraines started in my twenties. So, and um, they just got really bad around my pregnancy. I'd not been much of a migraine sufferer, so that's why I thought something was wrong because
1: I was not used to the headaches. And so what kind of an operation was involved with that?
0: Well, I had two choices to not operate at all. um, And that would have given me about five years to live, the doctors thought, or to have a 12-hour surgery, which is, he, at that time, that was about the longest surgery possible. So I was sort of on that border of inoperable, but the surgery was going to be broken up into two parts. Well, I had this little baby and I really thought I better hang in there. And so I opted for the surgery. I was very scared. I'm not very brave. So I breastfed her for about 11 months before that, um, just to get her going. It was very much imparted to me in a frank way that it was chancy and I mightn't make it.
1: You, you had her for 11 months and then you went in for for surgery. And was the surgery straightforward? You mentioned meningitis. What, how did that come into your system after the operation? or
0: After the first one. Yeah, the first one was successful, but then... I got meningitis, and that threw me into a delirium and then a coma.
1: And was it that that erased your memory?
0: Yes, yes.
1: There's a lot of very complex concepts to understand if you've had your memory wiped too. It must have been quite some time before you were capable of understanding of what happened to you.
0: My doctor used to talk to me a lot about amnesia and what was happening to me, and it would go in one ear and out straight out the other. I couldn't, I couldn't remember that I'd forgotten for a while. So I couldn't come to grips with what I had. I couldn't remember the name of my condition. It did seem very complicated.
1: You said at the outset you weren't sure whether you were, you thought you might be a prisoner in the hospital. Did it take a while for you to realise you were there as a patient, uh, someone being cared for, as opposed to someone who was (laughs) being tortured with all these needles and pain and immobility.
0: I feel a bit embarrassed to say that because I did have amazing nurses and the medical system were fantastic, you know. Um, oh, I I'm sure s- they were doing their
1: everything I they could for you. I know, I had specialist it's just,
0: nurses. But I did but it's ex-
1: an understandable misapprehension, I, I did. Think. Yeah. I did.
0: I thought I was being punished for some bad deeds and um, I thought that it was a prison and I thought I was, yeah, being punished because I didn't have comprehension. I didn't have logic. I didn't have a backstory. We We love narrative. And I didn't have my own narrative to say how I'd landed there. So to me, pain was punishment, and these people were inflicting things on me.
1: Okay, and you had a sense of sin as well. That's terrible. I know. Girl, I know. <laughs> oh God. I didn't even. I've I wasn't been a bad even, girl.
0: I wasn't even brought up religious, so I don't even know where it came from. Um, yeah, my both my parents were were secular people, and I was not to go to you know Sunday school because it was all propaganda. They was they, they believed in science, so I didn't have sin in my childhood, except that it's in the broader culture. Yeah,
1: well, you, you don't need to go to church to get a sense of sin, do you? That's that's the thing. So, how did you then decide you were going to get out of there, that hospital? How did you then find your way out? Because I'm sure they were reluctant to release you until you could operate competently in the world. How did you persuade them you could get out?
0: Well, it wasn't like that at all. It At that time, as I recall it, um, I was in a neurology ward. You you only stay there when you really need to. It's very urgent for very urgent surgery. And they decided that I was to be tested. I mean, there were various tests going on all the time, but there was one particular test for going home that I recall, and I was taken in a wheelchair from the, the ward across the road to a rehab centre where I was to bake Anzac
1: biscuits. (laughs) (laughs) That was was your rehab test? I suppose that's not a bad one in some ways. But what problems did you encounter making Anzac biscuits?
0: (laughs) Well, the thing was I couldn't read and they didn't seem to have that in their notes because they expected me to read a recipe. So the first problem was that I had to admit to this woman that I couldn't read and I was you know, I hated admitting that, but I already knew I couldn't read. Um, so she handed me this recipe and said, "You know, well, we're about to have, make these wonderful, wonderful biscuits." And um,
1: I said, "Oh look, I can't, I can't read, I can't read this." And she, and what did the words look like on the page to you? Like hieroglyphics or something? Or what?
0: words look like little, yeah, little hieroglyphics. That's a good word for them. They just look puzzling, and when I'd stare hard, sometimes they'd wobble a little and shake. Um, you know, if I stared really hard, so it was best not to focus on them for too long. They sort of hurt my, my my eyes and my head to look at.
1: But you passed the test, nonetheless. You baked the Anzac biscuits.
0: She she read it out to me. She, she said, oh, "Okay, all right, we'll just um, well, like it's it's a doing test. It's a doing test, not a comprehension test." So,
1: um, well, I suppose it does make sense in some ways. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but I suppose you have to think sequentially, and you have to show some kind of motor skills. And an idea of time and all those sorts of things. So maybe it's not such a bad test at all.
0: And not burning the house down. Ah,
1: not burning the house down too, of course. So at some point you were brought to your home with the man you were told was your husband and your baby then. You were brought home. Do you think you were ready to operate in the world?
0: I didn't really know what was going on um, on many levels. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I didn't know my own history I hadn't been out in the broader world. Even sitting in a car on the way home was terrifying because speed was frightening. It was like the modern world. But I didn't really have much choice and I really loved the idea, naively probably, of spending time with my baby. I was really looking forward to it, kind of thinking that it would all magically turn out to be wonderful and that I'd know what to do. But I might have been a bit immature and thought, oh, goody, I'll play with a little, my dolly of a baby. I don't know what my thinking was. But I do know that I um, I really, um, I was very adrift, untethered and a bit lost in my own life.
1: It sounds like you had to like walk on eggshells through the world?
0: I was playing pantomime in a way. I was I was winging it. So I would learn off other people what to do and what things were and you could sort of study other people and go, OK. Um, and then because, of course... I had retrograde amnesia. Some people have something called anterograde amnesia where they really forget who they are. Every 10 minutes, their memory goes back to the centre of the the now. That would be awful. Um, Mine, I was repairing. So I was getting, I had my childhood, so I knew how to eat with a knife and fork because I could do that as a child. I had my childhood self intact and bits of the adult were coming in.
1: It sounds like that TV series that was on years ago called Thank God You're Here. I don't know if you ever saw that where they'd get some kind of famous person, and they'd get them ready just by saying, are you ready to go? And, and they'd drop them into a scene which was uh, it could be like suddenly you realise you're the president of Zambia or something like that. And as soon as you walk in, they go, oh, thank God you're here. You know, we've got all this thing going on, and you had to fake your way through it. You have to pretend to be the person that people expect you to be.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think for me I felt that the people around me um. I did feel heavy expectations. I don't think they are aware of it. I think everybody was trying really hard and quite freaked out. Um, my mother in particular was really, really stressed by my condition. She had thought I was going to die. Um, but once the, the threat of me dying was gone, everybody was sighed with relief and went back a bit to normal. I stayed home and and, and looked after this baby. I was offered by this partner of mine, a nurse. And that would have been probably quite helpful, but I associated nurses with the hospital and I just didn't want anything to remind me of the hospital. So there's no way I was gonna have a nurse in my house. It just seemed absurd to me. I probably could have done with some help and he did offer, but I was, no, no, I can do this on my own. I'm bringing up my own baby.
1: This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. find out more about Conversations podcast, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Anne, what were you told about your life before the operation?
0: I wasn't told as much as you'd think. Um, So I was living with um, the father of my daughter who didn't really talk much about the past with me and didn't talk personally, so he talked a lot about his business and work and a few things about our friends and just daily life. My mother wasn't as forthcoming as you'd think either. In what way? Well, it took me a long time to realise, but she was great on telling me what lovely times we'd had at Balmoral Beach when I was a child or what a good ballerina I was or what a great news journalist I was. So I'd been a journalist. And my friend um, Mahalia had told me that in the hospital. When she told me, I thought, oh, my God, how? How could I possibly be a journalist? This is unbelievable. I'm this quiet person. I'm this quiet girl.
1: When you'd once been Lois Lane, bold, <laughs> coming out right into the world, taking names, reporting on things that people didn't want other people to find out about. Wow.
0: I had a sense of, I suppose, I think Yana Vent was big in those days on TV and I had a sense of who she was by then um, from
1: from TV. So... What were the details your mother admitted, though?
0: She admitted to the things that she loved about me the most. So um, she liked that I'd been in news. She liked that I'd been a ballerina. She liked that I'd been a good, clever girl. So there was lots about me being a clever girl at school. And there was whole reams of my life that got left out of the narrative because they were unpleasant. So I'd gone off the rails and I'd, we'd I'd have had a very difficult relationship with my mother and, of course, that was just not disgust I don't think she meant to do that um, I think that's she just wanted to see me in the way that she did and
1: didn't want to distress you
0: she didn't want to distress me and she really didn't want to distress herself thinking of the bad sides the bad things and I would find that um, some people around me I think had the idea that there's and that there was no point telling me of things that it would be better for me to remember them myself spontaneously, ideas about recovery and what was good for me and what was bad for me. But also I did a lot of pretending. I did a lot of not asking and I was quite passive um, about it, but I would rush around on my own, you know, investigating things.
1: Was this a a part of the process of you faking it till you could make it, (laughs) You trying to pretend you knew what was going on when you were really quite unsure? Mm -hmm.
0: I think so and since then I've met a woman called Sue Meck who's also written a memoir and she did a similar thing and I don't know if it's not part of the amnesia process because I think that it makes you aware of how conformist we all are and how you want to perform and achieve. You don't want to be this person that doesn't know your own life. It seemed quite, I felt quite guilty and pathetic that I, you know, what sort of a mother forgets her daughter? What sort of a woman forgets her own history? It seemed like a failure.
1: You said when you were in hospital trying to figure out who on earth you were and who these people were, and your mum came in and she was 20 years older than she ought to have been into your mind, she said, oh, your husband will be arriving shortly. And sure enough, he arrived, the man who's the father of your your daughter arrived. But was he your husband?
0: No, he wasn't my husband, but my mother, my mother thought of him as my husband because my mother believed so much in marriages and we'd when I was young, she, she married several times. And when I was young, I said, I'm not, I'm not marrying you. You've married enough for both of us. And uh, <laughs> this distressed her. Oh, I know she she did. She married and divorced my father twice. So it was very, to me, it. it and I was a child of the seventies and you know, we all thought marriage was going to go away. We were all going to burn our bras and marriage was going to, it wasn't going to be important. It hasn't kind of gone that way. But, um, so there were a lot of things going on, but, he was my partner and and she, it, she would make it clear that she just thought of him as my husband so she wasn't meaning to to tell me false things she just she just used the language that was from her own world and that did happen with various people you realize that we've all got different views of one another and their perception of me would color what they'd tell me you know if you're relying on other people to tell you who you are you know you you will get their version of you
1: you said this other man had been coming to visit you who'd been a former lover and you'd had quite powerful feelings for him when he came to visit you without you really being certain of what your background with him was. What about your your husband? Your Sorry, your the man you were <laughs> told was your husband.
0: Did What were your feelings towards him? I didn't remember him at all. It was shocking to me and I felt terrible because I didn't understand why I couldn't remember him. And he seemed extremely um, vacant from my mind. It was just a source of great pain for me. And it would take many, many, many years till I properly remembered meeting him and the whole thing. And partly that was to do with the nature of the way my amnesia functioned. But I thought it was personal. I thought I'd blotted him out.
1: You said you'd been a journalist and, Mm. of course, obviously reading and writing was a big part of your life before the amnesia and which wiped out your ability to read and write. I just wonder what it was like for you to come home and see like a a bookcase full of books that you'd once owned and read and loved.
0: It was extraordinarily sad that the the only time I was aware that I cried was standing in front of my bookcase. So I hadn't I hadn't confronted the fact that I couldn't read fully until I saw it. And it stood in front of me. I hadn't even known what a bookcase was till I looked at it. And then I went, oh, bookcase. Then were all these books there. And I realized walking up to it that I couldn't even read the names on the spines and that they had must have held some huge meaning for me because at the side of my face there were tears. And I hadn't cried. Through all those things happening, I hadn't recalled that I've cried. So the books, to me, having lost that, I just felt so separated from who I'd been. I thought these were important to me. I used to read. I was a reader.
1: How did you then go about learning how to read and write again?
0: At first... At first I tried with my child's books... And that didn't seem to help at all. Um, there was this extraordinary pain in my eyes and my head that I get when I concentrated on things cl- closely. Um, so I, it would hurt. It would physically hurt to look at these words and then sometimes confabulation would kick in and that's where your mind plays tricks in the first stages of amnesia. And so my little letters could turn into ants and, and walk off the page. And I knew that wasn't valid. I knew this isn't what letters do.
1: It's not my, very helpful though, is it? No, my
0: mind is playing <laughs> tricks on me. So I actually ended up learning to read off a off an adult book. And for some reason I got, got out an adult book and I just, just stayed with it, stayed with it, stayed with it. And, you know, I had,
1: had breakthroughs and was able to do it. Do you think you were learning how to read and write or just remembering how to read and write?
0: I'd imagine remembering because I didn't have to go through all the alphabet and everything. I didn't have any of that. I think it was a re- remembered thing. Um, everything with amnesia was in there. It just I didn't have access to it.
1: And how satisfying was that to be able to read and write again?
0: It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. It really changed everything. And um but then I got really um strangely ambitious because I was surrounded by people who were really talking about the latest ideas all the time. There's a lot of artists and writers in my life and people studying this and that and I'd realized by then that I'd been quite, you know, I'd studied myself and I got it into my head that I would um no, actually, actually it was my friendly artist who, who suggested to me, why don't you go and study again? Because I was so conscious
1: that I had no knowledge. So no, not much history?
0: Would have been good to study history. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was all gone.
1: Where did you, what did you study then?
0: I ended up, I ended up studying philosophy.
1: See, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm absolutely not surprised. Well, I mean, you've got to go back to basics then, don't you? You have to sort of go to first principles and philosophy gives gives you maybe some kind of uh, some sort of base to understand the world. I th- with
0: I thought it's about thinking. I've had trouble with my thinking. I've studied philosophy before, and I thought this will be like a workout. You know, this will make this this brain snap into action. And did it? It did. It really did. It did. I'm so, I'm still surprised to this day how how effective it was.
1: How did you pursue philosophy? Did you go to uni or or what? Or read books?
0: I did. I went to Sydney Uni where I'd studied before, and I I, I had this idea that I'd just sit in on classes, but it was suggested that I enrol because you c- couldn't get the books if you didn't enrol. So I hadn't thought through that that would mean I'd have to actually write essays. So when it came to the essay point, I remember going to my lecturer. And he sort of, I said, look, I don't think I can spell. I don't think my grammar's going to be so great. I told him what had happened to me. And um, he said, well, well, don't worry about that. And he said, I won't mark you down for that.
1: I would imagine to any philosophy academic, you'd be a super interesting human being, (laughs) wouldn't you? I mean, without any preconceived ideas about much at all at this point, as someone who's had their whole consciousness and life rebooted.
0: I was um, of interest to my tutor, but I kept to myself. I mean, I felt very different. And I really kept to myself. I didn't feel like your average student. I was older as well.
1: Right. Um, and you didn't probably feel like being prodded and poked, I suppose. And uh, uh, <laughs> But still, I, I have wow. s-
0: Yeah, serious scars on my head. And I just still at that point didn't have much hair. And I'd wear a little bowl, bowl hat and go in and just write down. And I was very serious. I took it really. And I didn't have, I had a baby. I had, I had
1: just a set amount of time. You mentioned you have big scars on your head. Was it strange to feel them?
0: Oh, yeah, it still is. I'm missing a skull plate at the back, so I've got a big um, dent back there. The scars are really confronting. I have trouble looking at pictures of them, but anyway, they're out there in the
1: world. They're not visible now, but you know they're They would be if I didn't grow my hair. Were snatches of your old life coming back to you? Definitely. And, And in what form? Like, I mean, in stupid movies, like, you know, they go you know, there's suddenly this flash of memory and it's sort of like a Super 8 film or something like that and then you go, oh, my God. Of course, memory doesn't work that way. Are you able to describe how memories come back to you? Do they seep back in? How do they come back?
0: I think they do come back sometimes through triggers, through smells and sound and sight, all merging like a little film clip. I think that does happen sometimes and
1: smells really powerful, doesn't it? The memory. Smell
0: is really powerful. And I think that they've studies have found that those bits of the brain do light up when you remember. But my experience was that that not all the important memories came back. Like it could be quite random and little bits would come, but suddenly there would be that whole memory that's so amazing when you lost them to have like a a little window into a past bit of your life take hold. It's fantastic to have just triggered through somebody saying a word or a sound or even a place.
1: So do they sort of slot back in or something? And how does it feel when they do come back to you? Is it disturbing or is it really nice?
0: Well, you don't have a sense of slot because then I would have had a sense of a whole narrative. I mean, I'm missing a narr- I am missing was missing a narrative at that time. They would come like little gems. They would come like little flashes of reality. Now, by this stage, by this stage I'm getting a proper, real, proper memory like that. I'm not anymore having the confabulation. So that's, I know they're, tr- they're trustworthy, but I still would go back and make sure with people, you know, come on. I've, I've got a memory of you know, my teen years, were they like this? Or I've got a memory of being a journalist, was it like that? So I would still go back and test that out.
1: Even for those of us who haven't had a major amnesiac episode, memory is unreliable. It's funny, isn't it? And you have to wonder after a while, how much of it is imagination? Did that really happen to me? Did I imagine it?
0: Absolutely. Look, you couldn't be more correct. I have a memory that I suspect is just a reconstruction of being... Three years old on my mother's lap, and Kennedy was shot on our new but you know wonky color television. Color was sort of greenish, bit off. Um, that's my memory. I bet you that was my parents telling me
1: that happened, mm.
0: you know. So, I do know exactly what you mean, and I do think our memories are reconstructions. So, but I spent a lot of time actively reconstructing my memories.
1: Several times I've had this experience where someone, a good friend, someone I know very well, has sat there and told an anecdote about something that's happened to them that's kind of dramatic and interesting. And I know it never happened to them. It happened to me. And I told them about it. And they've they've, they've sort of adopted it and sort of glommed onto their minds as something that happened to them. And it's, it's a really amazing and enormously funny thing to say, well, let them finish. And you go, that never happened to you that because that happened to me. and And you just sort of point out the facts, and you couldn't have been there at the time, and I, I I was there at the time. And the profound shock it has on that person after they've very confidently told this amusing anecdote to realize that not a bit of it was real to them uh, is, is, is is amazing to watch. Man. and
0: And are they performing?
1: Yes. They are. And
0: they've nicked off with your memory?
1: Yes, they've nicked off. They've stolen my memory. They,
0: they, don't, they don't believe that they've had your experience.
1: They, 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 well, eventually they, they, there's a shock when they realise that it's actually true, that they, then they remember me telling them the story. But they've presented it very confidently and it's not a lie. They, they've not been lying they've, in their mind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was it Homer Simpson yeah. says if you believe yeah. it's true it's not yeah. a lie? Yeah. <laughs> but they've told that story and I know it's not happened to them. It's really interesting.
0: Well, so far my book's been out since November and the people who have been represented in the book so far have not argued with me about any of it. So I'm hoping that I haven't nicked off with somebody's <laughs> memory.
1: <laughs> you had been a journalist. How thoroughly did you investigate your, as a journalist, your ex-life as a journalist? Because this is 91 and there's not, there's not the internet then, is there? Oh, there's
0: not the internet, no. So
1: what do you do, go through like archives or something of your, your previous articles to read them?
0: I has (laughs) my mother did have scrapbooks, and um, I I had collected, I had cut out most of my articles and um, and put them into into folders and had them lying around. So, um, but at first, it's, it's also like I was that journalist beforehand. But I must say, having lost my memory could make me quite passive. I didn't want to know everything all at once. I couldn't digest all those articles I was still and I didn't want to go back to some of it so it was bit by bit so there was one hunger to want to know but there was times when it was just too much so I wouldn't say that I've ever really fully you know set out to investigate myself I don't think my journalistic career was as interesting as it could have been it was pretty just um, a lot of boring bits um, so um, Had I maybe been a bit more staggeringly brilliant, it would have been more fascinating.
1: Meanwhile, how was your relationship with your partner, the father of your daughter, Faring?
0: Oh, that didn't go very well. He he became very distant, very focused on his work and quite unreliable in terms of when he would come home. So it was, um, we were sort of moving off in other directions, I was really trying to reconstruct my life, very focused on, on my studies. He didn't really understand why I'd be studying philosophy. He was some like, where, where is the product? Where, where is the product of philosophy? Well, you get philosophical books, but that's he wanted an object. So it, we were really- So you're
1: profoundly different people, profoundly in other words.
0: Profoundly different people.
1: What about your daughter? How are you getting on with your baby daughter?
0: Oh, she was most excellent. Jessica was a great baby for me. She uh, was very smiley. We'd sometimes call her the Buddha baby because she would, she would just beam, and she uh, she had a good sense of humour. I know it sounds strange in a baby, but she'd she'd look up at a once she was talking, look up at a moth and say cuddle. You know, she was just cute and fun. Um, it was gruelling work because, of course, motherhood is and I was out on my own with it a bit. Um, but because she was so delightful, I, I was very lucky to have her because it gave me joy and I, and I didn't have much joy.
1: So you broke apart from her dad. What about this nice man that came to see you while you were in hospital that gave you nice feelings?
0: He did walk right back into my life and um, I spent some time with him and, and I'm really grateful for what he did do. At the time that I needed somebody to be there for me, he changed a nappy or two. He um, he turned up, he fronted up. And look, I was about six stone. I was didn't know always what was going on and I I was a bit of a jittery little thing. So he didn't seem to flinch and was, you know, turned up, was quite, quite good to me
1: well it's been more than 30 years since you woke up not knowing who you were do people say you're different now do you think you're different do you think given that you've had this big re- reboot of your identity and your memory uh, do people say things like oh you're not as stressed out about things as you once were or you're more stressed out about things do you think it's you you're, you're, there's been changes to your character or are you pretty much the same person
0: The people who would know, many of them aren't with us anymore. Um, so, um, one of my friends sometimes says, "Oh, that's that's Annie. That's the sort of thing Annie would say." And you know, do you sense,
1: like to hear that? I
0: do. I do. My sense of humour is pretty similar. But there was a there was a profound change in who I am because everything came easy to me before, and I've had to struggle. So I suppose. You know, when I hit thirty was my first big struggle. And I had to struggle to do basic things like read and write and to and to fit into a culture that where everybody else can do those things. Well, I used to be one of those clever kids who could just do what they wanted to do and I was sporty and I was clever and I was popular and so but I've always had a timid side and even as a journalist I was I had the two sides. So I think I think it helped my compassion to to, I don't think, I think I was more ambitious and probably competitive before than I am today.
1: When you have kids, one of the things you notice when they're small, I found this particularly with my daughter when she was little, and still to some degree now, she you suddenly realized kids are super observant. They see all sorts of things as they walk re- down the street that you'd miss because as adults, we learn how to think in shorthand so we can arrive at the point of what we need to do. We become more, become more pragmatic. We don't see things that, are apparently irrelevant, but, you know, your little daughter will see a, a specific kind of bird up mm, there yeah. that you won't see as an adult? Is that you? Were you like that for a long while? Were you seeing all sorts of things given that you couldn't take anything for granted, much the same way a small child can't take anything for granted and is unable to think in that kind of cognitive shorthand?
0: I certainly spent a bit of time absorbing the world and wonder- and having that sense of wonder because I when I was in the hospital, I couldn't remember what it was like outside the walls of the hospital. And, of course, once my senses returned to normal, because I had the scent, sense shut down for some time, and then when it when it came back, I could feel the wind and see the, you know, it was beautiful. I mean, I yeah, love nature. A war-
1: what was a warm, sunny day like?
0: Yeah, so everything was more, it was heightened and beautiful and um, swimming. I've re- reacquainted myself with swimming, which was just incredibly pleasurable to do and so yeah I think it was having that sense of wonder again that we can lose so easily if you get too busy as an adult and I also think I could look on at some adults in the early early days and think that's a bit silly look how they all you know go on about having some ritual tea and they're not getting to the point why aren't they talking about this why aren't they you know that childish Thing of criticising the adults.
1: Right, right. Their, their elaborate their, their elaborate courtesies and all that. Yeah. That just looks kind of so did grown-ups look lame to you, even though you were <laughs> one?
0: Adults did look very strange.
1: <laughs> when I first saw kissing on the
0: television, it looked like I thought, what are these people doing?
1: That they're, they're sucking each other's faces. It's it disgusting. Quite aggressive. Aggressive, yeah. right. <laughs> is kissing nice now?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, kissing is excellent now.
1: And it's been amazing speaking with you. What an extraordinary story. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Richard.
1: You've been listening to a
0: podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.